0: Thank you so much. I got to tell you guys, I am really stoked about where we're going to be going for a while. Uh, I, I start trial, it looks like, in Dallas. And I've, I'm going to be gone for a few months in trial, probably about three months. And and I'll still be coming back on weekends to teach, so you don't get out of coming to church, okay? I'm still looking for you guys. If I can come back on the weekends to teach then I expect you all to show up, okay? I don't want to come back for like nothing. But I'm going to modify what we do for this. I'm going to work on a different series for us. So we'll be starting something new next Sunday. And I think what it's going to be uh, is basically a look at the Old Testament as the road to Yeshua, to Jesus, the Messiah, So we're going to go through, through the end of the year, the Old Testament looking at how it has been very much pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. And where we find it speaking of him, why he must come, who he would be, and how he would go about things. So it's a marvelous study for anyone who's new to faith or considering faith. But I if you've been in my classes for long, you know, my goal is also for those of you who've been coming to church longer than Moses. <laughs> my goal is to make sure every Sunday we teach things that, that, that in the richness of God's Word are there that maybe you haven't seen or come across before. So it's going to be good, fresh material. It's going to be instructive material, but it's going to be very well-suited material. Both to solidify our faith, but also to help those who are searching for faith. Because it's, it's tremendous to look at Scripture in that way. Now what we've been doing during the last few months, intermittently come and go, and, and it's not to say that I've finished all the material, but it's through for a while, is figuring out how I would have defended Paul if I'd been hired to be his lawyer when Paul was arrested in 57 A.D. in the temple courts there in Jerusalem. And the last couple of classes we've had have been me examining Paul for motivation. Coach Max Bowman, where are you? Coach Max, come on up here for a minute. Coach Max, where's a, do we have a microphone for Max? Where do I find a microphone? Okay, those of you who don't know, this is Coach Bowman. Now, that's, that's him... Uh, that's him when he's not wearing his Jesus smile. That's when he's getting ready to throw the money changers out of the temple. He's got his Jesus stern face on. Those of you who don't know, Max coaches at Houston Christian Schools right now, uh, but he's coached in a number of different colleges, uh, a head coach all over the United States in different colleges and universities. Also coached the Buffalo Bills as a receivers coach or a line coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a bunch of those coaching titles back when they couldn't win the Super Bowl, but they, <laughs> but they got to the Super Bowl, which uh, is a cool thing. And coach, I got to ask you a question here. You have two questions you ask all the time. I want you to tell them your two questions. Do I have thirty minutes? No, you have one. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. We and uh, there, we're going to even turn
1: on the mic. All right. Uh, two questions. I used to ask this or say this all the time to my wife. What's your motive? What's your motive? What's your motive? Yeah. What's your motive? He's not, time, out, time
0: out. He is not here to give marital advice, okay?
1: No, Keep I, going. I always found out it was back the other way. No, what's your motive? <laughs> but here's the thing. I found two questions early on, okay, in our marriage that I raised my two kids by, and I've raised, I think, hundreds, maybe thousands of young men by. What's your motive? Who's in charge? I've never needed a third question. Because many, many times where Christ is concerned, I would say, my motive was right. Lord, my motive was right, but my actions were mine. Take Matthew 16 in 30 seconds, okay? Here's Peter. Christ said to him, who do people say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Three, four verses later. No, Christ, that won't happen to you. We're not going to let it. He just admits that here's the Christ, and now he's telling the Christ how to, how to, how to act. No, you're not going to be crucified. That's not going to happen to you. His motive was right, like so many of ours. But who was in charge of what he was saying and what he wanted to do? Not Christ. And when you put those two things together, I promise you, I have never needed a third question. My daughter, her, her, her husband, and my son, they've heard it so many times. Well, Dad, what's your motive? My wife, who's in charge? Not you, <laughs> not me. He is. Thank you,
0: Coach. Uh, 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 yeah, I know who's in charge. Uh, uh, what's your motive? Coach told me that a couple of weeks ago when I started this, because it is really a hard question in any legal determination. Any lawyer is posed with that question with their clients. It's the hardest question I have to ask clients. What do you want? What is your motive? I mean, I would have to ask Paul. Okay, Paul, you want me to be your lawyer, that's fine, but tell me what do you want and who's in charge? What do you want is that first question. What is your motivation? Do you want your freedom? Do you want to be famous? Do you want to make money off of this? Do you want to find easy street where your life is comfortable? Where you don't have to worry about uh, persecution. You don't have to worry about getting beat. Your, Your life is not on the line. You don't have to worry about mudding out your house. You don't have to worry about how you're going to fund a car. You don't have to worry about anything. Would you like easy street? Would you you like to be miserable? Some people really, I think, want to be miserable. Would you like to be on self-destruct so that everybody will pity you? And you can be the center of attention. Not because you're famous for anything great. But because you're famous, because everything horrible happened to you. And Paul's motivation, I'm convinced, was that higher calling. Paul's motivation really wasn't his freedom. And it would make it really hard for me to be his lawyer. If in fact what he wanted was not freedom. And He did not want freedom. I mean, and and it's not because, I used this slide the last time, it's not because the Roman prison was three good meals a day and Aunt B brought cake on Saturdays. Roman prison was a horrible, dank way to be, but even still, Roman prison wasn't, in the U.S. sense, the punishment. Roman imprisonment was simply a holding cell until you got punished. But if Paul was found guilty, Paul's punishment's death. If Paul is found guilty of sedition of the Roman Empire, the penalty is death. It's it the, the prison's just a holding cell where, you know, it's not a long term stay. It's not a place where he's getting food unless it's brought. By his friends or his family. It's a place where he exists in chains. So that hard question, what do you want, Paul? You would expect him to say freedom, but freedom is not the answer for Paul. Sorry, just had to add the sound effect. Freedom was not the answer for Paul. Kids are saying, what is that sound effect? There used to be things called typewriters. (laughs) Typewriters. See, when Paul was in prison, Paul figured something out pretty quick. Paul figured out that Paul was getting to talk to high Roman rulers about Jesus as Messiah. Now, I'm not saying that Paul thought that high Roman rulers were of any greater value than the smallest of the small. We know Paul... Paul valued everyone. Paul gets such a bad rap by people who do not understand Paul in his day. I cannot tell you how many people have told me, you know, I don't really like Paul because of his attitude toward women. And my response is, have you ever seen how progressive Paul was compared to the rest of his world? Paul's attitude towards women wasn't one of their second-class citizens. Paul's the one who made the bold statement that in Christ there's neither male nor female. Paul's attitude for women wasn't they should sit quietly by and look like paint drying on the wall. Women don't wear pearls. No. What Paul did say is, don't dress like a whore. Can I say whore in church or should I say prostitute? At least I didn't say hooker. You know, he told them because they're, they're children of God just like men. They're not to be valued because they're, they're, they're some sex symbol. They're to be valued as individuals. Paul didn't simply uh, uh, instruct women to keep silent in the church. Paul also told women when you're teaching and when you're praying in church, do it with your heads covered. Do it with respect. There's some dynamics there that people don't get. People say, well, I don't like Paul. Because Paul endorsed slavery. Actually, slavery was a built-in part of the Roman Empire that, that was so built into to the Roman system there wasn't anything Paul was going to ever be able to do about it. But within the structure of the Roman Empire and its slavery, Paul was the one who wrote the slave owner, Philemon, and said, let your slave go free. He's a Christian believer. And you should be serving him ever bit as much as he serves you. And Paul's the one who told all the rich people in the church in Corinth. Hey, when y'all get to church earlier than everybody else for the, uh, for the church meal. Because they would all eat together on a Sunday church feast as part of their communion. An agape feast. Paul's the one who's, and don't you know, Sunday's not a day off yet. Constantine is the one who made it a day off, 300 and something BC, A.D. So people work on Sunday. Slaves work seven days a week. And Paul's, but the rich people get, the, the, you know, rich people weren't working like that. They'd go to church on Sunday and have the big meal. And then finally the slaves and the other people who've done their day's work show up later. And the slaves are supposed to clean up. And the rich people let them. Hey, you can have the scraps of what we didn't eat. And Paul's the one who said, stop it. I don't care how rich you are. You wait until the least of these shows up and you all eat together and you all share a common table. You are one in Jesus. You're not rich and poor. You're not one color or another color. You're not one education level or another education level. You're not male or female. You're not Jew or Gentile. You are one in Jesus Christ. Paul was a cutting edge good guy on this stuff. So Paul's not just, hey, I get a chance to hobnob with royalty. Paul was happy to share the gospel with everyone. But Paul, and and wanted to, and he gave his life to. But Paul uniquely had an opportunity to talk to high Roman officials that no other Christian believer at the time was having. And Paul's sitting there saying, wait a minute. I have a chance to talk to high Roman rulers about Jesus? Don't take me from this, Lanier. Lanier. I trust you're a great lawyer who can get me off because I didn't do anything. But I don't need to be set free. I need to be right here where I can tell these high Roman rulers that Jesus loved them and gave his life for them and was crucified for them and God resurrected him physically to show the world That there is life for us after this death if we are in Jesus. Paul says, I can't pass that up. I don't care about the chains. I don't care I get killed when it's over with. Now that makes it really tough on the lawyer. So you say, let me get this straight. What you want me to do is either win or lose. It doesn't matter as long as I don't win too early. You want me to drag my feet? You want this imprisonment thing to last? As long as I assure that you've got a chance to tell people about Jesus? Because the defense is supposed to be Paul didn't do anything wrong. Paul's not worried about that defense. He's don't waste your time talking about whether I did anything right or wrong. Let's just tell them what Jesus did. That's all he's into. So that's the motivation and that's the difficulty. Look at the timeline and let's look at this in terms of history. How many of you majored in history? Oh, five. How many of you who majored in history were ever able to get a job afterwards? That's the tough challenge. Major in history, go to law school. Um, So I'm going to assume that you've been catching this history as we've been going through it. But some of you haven't been in the class. And some of you who have been in the class have eaten just a little too much donut to hang on to that stuff. So let's be sure we've got our timeline right. 45 to 60 AD is where our concerns are. So in 41 A.D., the emperor of the Roman Empire is Claudius. Claudius rules from Rome. He is the first citizen of Rome. He is is a dictator for all practical purposes, though he's called an emperor. As the emperor of Rome, Claudius has the power to appoint his hand over various provinces as ruler. So um, uh, I would never, ever, ever recommend you watch Game of Thrones because it's got some uh, outrageous stuff that's in it. But if in spite of my lack of recommendation, because I could never recommend that. Seriously, it's got some really bad stuff in it. But, <laughs> which I mean, you're about to realize I watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I know it's got really bad stuff in it and you shouldn't be watching it. Okay. And I do not watch it where any of y'all can see. And I basically watch it for the music. Um, but the, 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 the king's right hand is called the hand. The hand of the king. When the king is gone, the hand rules. That, that concept that Martin put into the Game of Thrones is a concept that's based on the Roman concept of the hand of the king. And so the hand of the emperor Claudius, who rules as Claudius in the various provinces over which the hand has been given authority, is in the area that includes Judea, where Jerusalem is, where Caesarea is, Dale Hearn. That area... From 48 to 52 A.D. is Cuminus. So Cuminus is Rome's, uh, is, is the emperor Claudius's hand for Judea. Now, Cuminus gets in trouble for the way he handles Jewish uprisings and rebellions. So Cuminus gets fired by Claudius. And he gets fired by Claudius because he doesn't handle Jewish uprisings well. And when he gets fired, Claudius appoints a new hand to take care of Judea. The new hand is Felix. Now what's really important here is you realize Felix, like Cuminus... ...reports in the chain of command straight to the emperor. The emperor is his boss. He's not one way down in a chain. He is number two. In terms of everyone in Judea... you ...the only place to go higher than Felix is the emperor... So Felix takes over knowing he gets his job because Cuminus did not handle the uprisings well among the Jews. And Claudius dies and is replaced in 54 AD by Nero. Now Nero winds up being an absolutely horrific, terrible, horrible emperor who ultimately is responsible for the death of Paul and the death of Peter. He's the emperor who takes the Christians and crucifies them in his garden and then sets them on fire on the, the crosses to be torches to light his night party. Bad, bad, bad dude. But he's becomes emperor at a very young age and for the first five years... He's, he's, he's not such a bad dude, I guess is a way to say it. It's actually, some people would have called it the golden age. Everything seemed to be clicking pretty good. So Felix becomes uh, Rome's procurator because Claudius appoints him. But when Claudius is dead, now he's got a new boss. And he's the hand of the old king. And the question is, will he keep his job with the new king? You following all of this? Now, you may be saying, I did not read this in the Bible. Actually, there are indications of this that are very consistent in the story that's written in the Bible. But the Bible's not writing for this history for you to relate. We have tons of Roman historians, though. And so everything I'm telling you, you get the papers off the internet or emailed to you. All of this is footnoted. There's no question about this history. This is historical fact. And so Felix takes over, but he gets a new boss, a new emperor. And Felix is worried about his job. Felix knows that the old guy who had the job lost it because he didn't handle the civil unrest if you will of the Jews and so Felix is tuned into this and Felix is working hard at it when in 57 AD Paul is arrested and the Jewish authorities that want Paul killed know the soft spot for Felix the soft spot is hey hey He's one of the disturbances. This guy's one of the guys who's the Jewish agitators. This guy's one of these problem troublemakers. They got your predecessor fired. And now you got a new emperor that probably doesn't trust you all that much anyway. And you better take care of this disturbance called Paul. So we walked through this, and we walked through how Felix handled the disturbance, and we walked through that initial trial. But before Felix can release Paul, and and he would have, if Paul had paid him a bribe, if Paul had paid court costs, Felix would have released him. But Paul's not doing it because every so often Felix and his Jewish wife Drusilla keep calling Paul in to talk to him more about Jesus. Paul's like, I'm fine right here. Don't get me out, lawyer. I'm getting to share the gospel to the number two man, to Caesar. And so Paul stays there. But history and Acts tells us Felix got fired because he wasn't handling the Jews well. His basic job is keep peace with the Jews. We've, we've got to get in our brains wrapped around that world for a moment um, look let's come over here let's go big let's get artistic which I can't do but we're gonna try okay so the the world you've got Italy and it's shaped like a boot you got... Uh, Greece that comes down with the isthmus and all of that mess you got you come around Turkey and you got Egypt and Libya and all of that mess you sort of following this so this is Rome this is Greece it's the word this is Turkey and Turkey actually butts down like that I didn't do a very good job Turkey the country of thanksgiving this is Israel down here and this is Jerusalem you got the Nile and Egypt here you got Libya here etc you following okay here's the deal this is the Roman Empire they rule all of these areas They've got an army, but the number of professional soldiers isn't massive. They raise professional soldiers when they need to go to war. But they've got to defend this northern border against all of these Gauls. They've conquered a good whoops, conquered a good bit of Gaul, but some of it hadn't been conquered. And there are a lot of Gaul up there that have a chance of coming down here. They've got to defend against the, the, the Goths and the Visigoths over here or their predecessors. They've got to defend against the people out here over in India and Iran now, those areas. They've got to defend, actually they're pretty good down here because this is basically desert. And they do alright, but up here in Carthaginians and and that's part of their empire, but they've always got to be defending. The last thing in the world they need is civil unrest within their borders. Especially if you, and, and, and remember, this is, let's see if we can make that bigger, there we go. This is, um, this is not the kind of world where you can just fly your fighter jets over and do a strafing run. Or drop a few bombs. You can't just put all of your soldiers on a couple of motorized ships and send them around. It's not even safe to go through the Mediterranean during six months of the five months of the year, November through March, however many that is. They, you, you don't even take ships out. I mean, how are they going to get enough soldiers over to handle these uprisings? It's not easy. And if they take the troops from here, The Gauls come in. And if they take the troops from here or here or here, other people come in. So they've got stationed here in Jerusalem a small force, but it's not huge. Remember 68 AD, nine years after, or 11 years after Paul's arrest, but nine years after the events we're talking about today, The entire Jewish nation rebels against Rome. And the Roman Empire has to gather an army and send it down through Titus and get it there and wipe them out. But this is a hotbed of nationalism fervor. And so Rome, the emperor, has his hand there to stop it from becoming the explosion that the tinderbox could be. So he's been... the, the, The Roman emperor's been firing people right and left. The Roman emperor, if we go back to the PowerPoint, the Roman emperor fires Felix and replaces him with Festus. Now, when he fires Felix... Festus, by the way, I found a picture of him, and those of you who are young won't get this, but the rest of you will appreciate the fact. Now, Festus, those of you who don't get that and wonder why the older part of our class is laughing just need to go watch a a rerun or two of a show called Gunsmoke. The deputy was Festus. Festus, and he wore that hat, Matthew, Um, uh, Festus has been on the job for just three days when he begins to deal with Paul because you want to know what happened. The predecessor, Felix, if we go back, Felix hadn't been dealing with the Jews right. So Festus comes in, but do you know what's happened? Jews from Caesarea, where Paul has been arrested, where Paul has been held, those Jews go to Rome and start complaining to the emperor Nero that his hand hasn't dealt with the Jewish uprising people, the malcontents, the instigators, the troublemakers. Well, and they're going to tell on him, and they want Felix not just fired, they want him killed. They wanted something drastic to happen to him so that Festus, the new guy, will take care of business. Here's the way it was written up by the Jewish historian. Now, when Porcius Festus was sent as successor to Felix by Nero, the principal of the Jewish inhabitants of Caesarea, that's where Paul's being held. These are the ones who are trying the case against Paul. The principal of the Jewish inhabitants of Caesarea went up to Rome to accuse Felix. And he had certainly been brought to punishment had Nero not yielded because Felix's brother, Pallas, was a lord high muckety-muck and intervened on his brother's behalf and saved his brother's life with the emperor. But the Jews are trying, they want the hand to do the Jewish business of the Jewish power structure. That's the same Jewish power structure that wants Paul Dead. And so we see Festus on the job, and if we read the story in Acts, in Acts 24, starting with verse 27, here's the way we read it going down. Let's see if we can't... Acts 24... 27. Ah, there we go. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Yeah, you bet he wanted to do them a favor. Because they're headed to Rome to tell on him. He, it, it, that, do you know what that's called? That's called too little, too late. Didn't save his job. They went and tried to get him killed anyway because they wanted to make an impression on the new man. Now, after three days, Festus had arrived in the province and he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. All right, let me go see what the problem is. Let me check it out. New man on the job. First thing he needs to do is take an understanding of what the problems are, what's going on. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Remember, Josephus tells you the principal men, these are the leaders. They're the ones who went and belly ached that Felix wasn't getting the job done. Wanted him punished as as an example for his successor. And they laid out their case. I mean, everything going on in their world. And three days into the job, their concern is getting rid of Paul. Asking as a favor against Paul. Hey, would you please summon Paul to Jerusalem? You know, here's our case. This guy's bad. You bring him back here, we'll show it. And the whole time they're doing that because they're planning an ambush to kill Paul on the way. Now Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that Festus was headed to Caesarea shortly. And so he said, look, let the men of authority go down with me. If there's anything wrong about him, they can bring the charges. Under Roman law, The hand of the king, if you will, of the emperor. Under Roman law, he is the emperor to hear the claims. He's the judge and the jury. He stayed among them no more than eight or ten days and then he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Look at this. The next day? he's now been on the job for two weeks and he is immediately dealing with Paul he knows exactly how important this is to the Jews he knows that the previous two guys to hold his job got fired because the Jews were dissatisfied with him and he is immediately putting his hand to the chore that is before him dealing with the apostle Paul He takes his seat on the tribunal. He orders Paul to be brought. When Paul arrived, the Jews who'd come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they they couldn't prove them. Paul hadn't done anything wrong. Paul argued in his defense. He said, I haven't broken the laws of the Jews. I haven't violated the sanctity of the temple. And I haven't broken any Caesar's laws. But Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. I mean, Festus is an ordinary guy. He wants to please the people that have gotten his two predecessors fired and almost killed. He's dealing with it immediately. So he says to Paul, look, why don't you go on up to Jerusalem and just get tried there on these charges? Clearly, he didn't think Paul had done anything to violate the laws of Rome because he wouldn't send him to Jerusalem for that. He'd try him himself. But he's thinking, well, maybe this is a religious skirmish. I just don't understand these religious issues. These Jews, they're weird. They don't even eat pork. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's court. Where I ought to be tried because I'm a citizen of Rome. Not a citizen of the Roman Empire. There was no such thing. Paul's a citizen of the city of Rome. And the city of Rome's got its own courts and Caesar is the head of those courts. That's one of his many job titles. Paul says to the Jews, I've done no wrong and you know this. If I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to the charges, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to my home court. And I have that right. I don't have to go to Jerusalem to be tried. I'm not a citizen of Jerusalem. I'm a citizen of Rome. I appeal to Rome. I get to go home. I don't get tried by the hand of Caesar. I get tried by Caesar. Festus conferred with his council. Is he really a Roman citizen? If we check this out, we're sure about all of this. And and I'd love to tell you that Festus understood the law real well. He'd been on the job two weeks. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know the difference between come here and sick him. He's a dangerous dog. Come here. Sick him. So after conferring, checking to make sure he's doing his job right, he said to Caesar, you've appealed to Caesar, you'll go. Now, when some days passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. You saying, wait, a minute, how's there a king? I thought the king was the, the emperor of Rome. Well, that's why they call him an emperor. Some of the people he had below him were kings. Quote unquote. But they were appointed by him as well. So Agrippa is the king of, or ruler, if you will, of a neighboring province within the Roman Empire. He bended the knee to the emperor. In fact, he'd been appointed and made king by the emperor. Agrippa and Berenice arrive at Caesarea and they greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, hey, there's this prisoner Felix left. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders laid out their case against him asking for a sentence of condemnation. I told him it wasn't the custom of the Romans to to give up anyone before they met him face to face and had a real trial. So when they came together here, I made no delay. On the next day, I I took my seat on the tribunal. I started the trial. When the accuser stood up, they didn't have any charge of such evils as I supposed. I thought they were going to say, "Oh man, he got 150 brigands and he started, you know, killing renegades." And rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and this certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul said this is alive. And I was at a loss to investigate these, so I said, "Hey, you want to go to Jerusalem and be tried there?" And Paul appealed to stay in custody for the decision of the Emperor, so I'm holding him till I can send him to Caesar. Agrippa said, "I'd like to hear this fellow myself. Tomorrow we'll get it done. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice come with great pomp. They enter the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. It's a huge affair. They come in with the parade and everything else. And at the command of Festus, Paul's brought in. And Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting he ought not live any longer. But I found he'd done nothing deserving death. And he himself appealed to the emperor, so I'm going to send him. But I need to write down what happened. You don't just send him. So I don't have anything definite to write. So I brought him before all of you, the citizens, everybody, the military, but especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I can write down what it is. I need to send him, send the charges associated with him. And that was Roman law. That was his requirement. He had to write down the charges. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand, that's the order stance, made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now... You may be saying, how did Paul know that this fella was aware of any of this stuff? How would Paul know what King Agrippa knew or didn't know? And so we got to talk about this for just a moment and make some sense out of it. So you've got King Agrippa, okay? Agrippa II. He is, uh, let's make this bigger, we're going to need to do some work here. So you've got Agrippa II, who is the king. Now, King Agrippa II was born in 27 A.D. And we're at 59 A.D. at this point. So he's 32 years old. You got it? You got 32-year-old King Agrippa. And he's there with his sister, Bernice. Now, Bernice was born 28 A.D. And so she's 31 years old. They have a third sister. The third sister is Drusilla, who had been married to Felix, who'd been listening to Paul for the last two years. So when Paul's talking to Agrippa and his sister Berenice, for the last two years before, he's been talking to Drusilla, their third sibling see, all of them were children, furthermore, of King Agrippa I. King Agrippa I had lived from 10 B.C. to 44 A.D. You can read about him dying in the book of Acts. But not until after he had killed James as a Christian martyr. So Agrippa killed James, had James martyred. Agrippa I had gotten his kingship because he was born from a fellow named Aristobulus IV. And Aristobulus IV, bless his heart, died at like the age of 24. So Agrippa I was like a year old or two years old when his daddy died. So Agrippa I got raised in Rome in the imperial court as a kid of the emperor. So the emperor felt safe sending him to be the king of that area. You see, Aristobulus IV's father was Herod the Great. He's the one who slaughtered all of the infants at the time of Jesus. Yeah, Agrippa knows about this stuff, and Paul knows Agrippa knows about this stuff. So Paul says, Man, I'm delighted to get to make my defense in front of you because you're pretty familiar with all of this. You got your sister, you got your dad, you got your great granddad, tried to kill a bunch of people because the Messiah was being born. You're all over this. And then Paul begins. And it sounds like Paul's going to make a defense, but he doesn't. Paul says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known how good I was, how careful I was. They know that I personally tried to kill anyone associated with this religious sect, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And let's go back to the PowerPoint. He walks through and he tells Agrippa, but he's not defending himself for the actions for which he was arrested. All he's doing is telling Agrippa the story about Jesus and how Jesus is the promised Messiah. He says, Yeshua is the Messiah and we've known it forever. And I was blind to it. And I was so blind to it, I caused people to die. Just like your father. We can be blind to it. But it's the truth whether we accept it or not. It's just a question of will we live in the reality of it. You read the history of Josephus about these times and it fits hand and glove. Agrippa II, 20 years later, starts reading the histories as Josephus is writing them. Josephus sends his histories to this Agrippa. These histories that just mesh perfectly with the Bible. And we have the letter Agrippa wrote back to Josephus that says, Your history is dead on accurate. I can't wait for the next volume. This is real whether we accept it or not. I mean, we can say, we can read the acts and say, eh, fake news. But saying fake news doesn't make it fake news. Sometimes, you know, I, I told Becky when Hurricane Harvey was headed to Houston, she said, what are we going to do? I said, it's on CNN. It's fake news. <laughs> well, it turned out to be Real. You know, we can deny it if we want to, but it fits. It's historically, uh, we we were talking last night, uh, Megan and and Josh and the family were sitting around the table talking about some issues of other religious faiths. And I said, well, those are historically faith-based religions as we were discussing them. Uh, Megan grew up in in Utah, and so she grew up around a lot of people that were Latter-day Saints, LDS or Mormons. And and we were discussing the class we had taught in here, the, the weeks where I said, why I'm not a Mormon. And, and you know, you, history is there. This is consistent with history. And so when you look at Paul, you're looking at a fella who had the chance to proclaim the truth about Jesus to high powers. And he couldn't and wouldn't pass that up. So yes, I could be hired as his lawyer. Yes, I could get him off of the crimes. I could have walked him and could have had him whistle zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay as he talked about what a wonderful day it was. But he wouldn't have let me. He would have looked at me and he said, Mark, I don't want your legal services to set me free. I want your prayers To reach these people for Jesus. So that's what it had been. And that's what he says. And so two years later. He's in Rome. And here's the letter he writes. These are your points for home. He writes to the church at Philippi in Greece. I want you to know brothers. That what's happened to me. Has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That means Caesar's personal guards and troops. And to all the rest, I'm imprisoned for the Messiah. Wow. That's the motivation. That's the answer to both of Coach's questions. What's your motive and who do you serve? He's got them both. And there's nothing else you need to ask. Point for home too. Because he counts everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. Everything. For the sake of Jesus, he suffered the loss of everything. His freedom, his liberty, his fame, his fortune, his money, his easy street, his everything. And, and all of that, he counts it as garbage. Compared to the value of knowing Jesus as his Lord. To compared to the value of Jesus being the answer to those two questions. My motive is Jesus. My Lord is Jesus. Nothing has value beyond that. Nothing. Just as there's no third question, there's no second value. Last. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know how to to be impoverished and live like a a refugee. I know how to live wealthy. He says, I know in any and all circumstances. I've learned the secret of, of facing plenty. And facing hunger of abundance and need. And the secret is Jesus. That's the motivation. It's on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So I hope somewhere in the midst of all of this it blesses you. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? And I look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. In the name of Jesus, Father. In the name of... The the power, the actions, the character, the blood of Jesus our Lord. Reach into our hearts and give us that motivation. Give us a reason to get up, a reason to smile, a reason to become different than who we are today. A reason to, to find a purpose in life. Give us that, Father, in Jesus our Lord. Amen.